Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about a story in the life of Jesus. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to tell you about the services that we have coming up on Easter and the week leading up to it, which is traditionally called Holy Week. The first thing we have is Palm Sunday, which this year falls on March 25th. And our Palm Sunday service is one in which we really try to celebrate who Jesus is and why it was important that he entered into Jerusalem. And because our goal is to celebrate, that service is usually a really fun and lively service for us. And this year will be no different. We'll sing some upbeat songs. My sermon will be one in which I am lighthearted, but also really try to focus on who Jesus is and why that's important. The following Friday is Good Friday, the day that the church commemorates the death of Jesus and all that it means for us. Our Good Friday service is very different than our Palm Sunday service. It is a service where we do our best to reflect deeply on the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. Our Good Friday service is centered around the Stations of the Cross, which is a traditional and artistic way of remembering the passion of Christ. We will take time to think about certain things that Jesus suffered as he moved towards death, and then we will reflect and then sing songs that align with those incredible sufferings. We'll finish that service with communion. The next day, March 31st, is our annual Easter egg hunt. And in that event, we partner with the Villebois Events Committee. Villebois is the neighborhood that we have our church services in. And we're really proud and excited to be able to partner with them again as we run that Easter egg hunt. That event runs from 12.45 p.m. until about 1.30, and there are different starting times for different age groups. There will be thousands of eggs, great prizes. It's really a great event. If you have kids or grandkids, we hope that you'll come out and be a part of that. And then the following day is Sunday, the Sunday of Easter. And on that day, we'll have what I think will be an incredible service. We do our best to blend contemporary and traditional in our Easter service. We sing old and new songs. We'll also have video and readings. And so really it is kind of a mix of old and new. On that Sunday, I'll preach a sermon about how no matter how bad things are in our lives, the resurrection means that we can have a fresh start. We'll finish that service by decorating an old, super ugly cross with flowers as a reminder that Jesus' death was horrible and ugly, but his resurrection is the most beautiful thing that the world has ever known. After that service, we will have a brunch, and the brunch is catered by Wilsonville Catering Company. They do an incredible job, and we're going to have a great meal with eggs and bacon and lots of good stuff. So now I've told you about all that we have going on, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, our egg hunt, and Easter. I really do hope that you'll come and be a part of each of those things. You can get all of the details by going to wilsonville.church Easter. That's wilsonville.church Easter. And now I hope that this sermon helps you to learn 
and live more fully for the glory of God. So a couple of weeks ago, I said that sometimes in my family, there's like these stories, but you've heard them a million times, and so you don't care anymore. And then I don't know if my my grandma decided to make up some new stories because she heard me say that or what, but but like she told me the other day a couple of stories I had never heard before. One uh, was about Billy Graham, and uh, my uh, great grandfather was a uh, church planter here in this area and you know we think of denominations people my age and younger like denominations and the splits and denominations that had to happen like two million years ago right like they're as early as time to us you know uh, but my great-grandfather was part of like the conservative Baptist denominations existence and uh, some things that seem so ancient now um but he had this opportunity right just shortly after Billy Graham had, had kind of started to become famous. He had this opportunity to go deep sea fishing with him. And uh, the, the kind of mythical nature of my great-grandfather in my family uh, has, has kind of led to this, this persona. And, and I know this, like, he was never late to anything ever. And, and in order to go deep sea fishing with people, I mean, you can't be late because otherwise you have to be a great swimmer, right? And so he, he, he was excited, like this big deal going out with the cool pastors or whatever, you know, and he overslept and missed it, never hung out with Billy Graham. So, uh, right, it's a good story. And, and the rest of the stories about my great-grandfather, I've heard two million times, and it's like, yep, know it, know it, check mark. But she told me this new one, and and today I hope to do the same with the story that you've heard a million times if you've grown up in the church. But, but there's this deeper meaning to the story that we're going to look at in the life of Jesus that, that you probably, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you probably don't know this deeper meaning. You've never heard it before. Um, and we do this, right? Like if, if there's not a new part of the story added, if we've heard it a lot, then we have a tendency to, to just kind of neglect the story, overlook the story, or not think about the story, or diminish the importance of the story. And this whole series, Jesus Stories, is kind of driven by this idea that, that in our culture today, there exists, there exists really three kind of key generations. One, that knows these stories super well. Two, a group of people like my parents' age that kind of heard these stories growing up but haven't thought about them in a long time. And then three, like a group of people younger than me that, that haven't really heard these stories before. And so we're telling these stories, Matt and I, in, in hopes that, that you'll either again or for the first time say, whoa, like that's an incredible story. And today we have this story that like for me growing up in the church, I, it's, like, it's like you've just heard it. To me, it's like Noah's Ark, right? It's just one of those stories that you heard in Sunday school. It was cool the first time you heard it. You might have said, whoa, but that was like 400 times ago, you know? And now I've, I just, really, I'm not just saying this to set it up. Like, it's kind of like, ooh, what's the big deal, you know? Jesus did that. And, and this story is called The Feeding of the 5,000, and uh, it's a story in which, I'll just give you the, the kind of punchline, Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with just a, a few loaves of bread and a couple of pieces of fish. And that's pretty incredible, but we really diminish it. But the, the writer of Mark, John Mark, as we've seen in this series already, 
influenced by the disciple, the apostle named Peter as he wrote this gospel down. He actually doesn't diminish this story at all. Um, we were kind of joking. I think it was Matt and I. Uh, Matt had the, uh, he taught on the temptation story of Jesus last week. And in the book of Matthew, like that's a pretty long story. It takes the majority of Matthew chapter 4. It's like it, it, there's a lot of space given to it. In Mark, it's two verses. It's like Jesus was tempted. There were some wild animals and some angels. I'm out, you know, like that's the end of it. And, and I was joking with somebody, either Matt or somebody else, like it's almost as if John Marcus, he wrote this, influenced by Peter and the Holy Spirit moving, was like, well, we only have a certain amount of paper here. Like we have this many sheets of paper. And so Peter, as you tell me these stories, like you better, you better make some serious decisions about what gets in and what goes out. And Peter's like, oh, that temptation story is crazy. But, but like eh, a couple of verses. And then you come to this feeding of the 5,000, and Marcus, he pins this letter, gives incredible amount of space to this story. And it seems to suggest that, that for Mark and, and Peter and the early Christians, this was a very important story, one that we should not overlook. I mean, the baptism gets like six verses, the temptation gets two, and then Mark gives like this longer, uh, uh, this, these paragraphs to this story that's called the feeding of the five in fact, this is not just a, a Mark thing because this is the only story that's recorded uh, in all of the only miracle story, excuse me, in all of the Gospels. It's the only story of Jesus doing a miracle that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say, we got to include that. That has to go in. Like, we need to tell that story. And in fact, in uh, we learned that there's, uh, in Mark and Luke, there's a, a separate story that's 4,000 men are fed and then some women and children too. And so it seems to be a big deal. And, and furthermore, in the book of Mark, he's going he's gonna to come back to this story a couple of times later and reference it again and say, hey, like think about the feeding of the 5,000 and the importance of that story. And we'll look at those in a couple of seconds, uh, a couple of minutes anyway. And, and so here's this story. That if you're like me and you grew up in the church, you're like, yeah, the feeding of the 5,000. Or if you're like uh, many people who just kind of have read the Bible or know the Bible, you just kind of dismissed it, right? Like, oh, Jesus fed 5,000 people. Of course he did. He's Jesus, you know, and you just moved on. But for the early writers of the Gospels, this was a really big deal. And, and I think we're going to see why in, in Mark's telling, at least one of the reasons why in, in Mark's telling, because he tells it in a different way that gives like a secondary point. And, and this is how it begins in Mark 6, 30 and 31. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Jesus has just sent out the disciples to go out and do kind of the first missionary work. And, and so they've gone out and there's been great success and they've come back and they're excited to tell Jesus about all the things they've been able to accomplish for him and all the things that God has been doing as they went around these different cities. And because it was such a positive experience all of a sudden the crowds are building, right? I mean, Jesus is already drawing crowds, but now the crowds are starting to grow and they're becoming so busy 
that they don't even have time to eat. And so Jesus says, let's go to this quiet place. But this NIV translation of the, of the phrase that, that's Greek that translates quiet place is really, is really bad because, because actually the, the true right translation is a real clue into what Mark wants to say in this story. Uh, the word more literally translates as dry, barren, or uninhabited place, or as some would translate it simply, and this is just a huge clue and we'll come back to it, but desert. It's like, hey, let's go, in Mark's words, to the desert so that we can get away and be by ourselves. But there's this, this other kind of clue in these first two verses about what the feeding of the 5,000 is really all about, and And that's this, Jesus says, let's go out into the desert in order that we might get some rest. And in the Old Testament, and this is hard for us to pick up on because even if you've been a Christian a long time, you've probably relegated the Old Testament to, you know, secondary, something that you maybe will read if you ever get around to reading the whole Bible, those types of things. And so the Old Testament has this theme. And the theme is is one of rest in the desert desert I mean just going right along with Mark and so what happens is you see in the Old Testament the Jewish people are freed from Israel they go out into the desert they end up spending 40 years in the desert but even in the midst of that God is able to give them rest he's able to provide for them he's able to to build them up as a nation and do great things in them and they realize as they come out of that desert and move into you know, the their holy land that they have this now permanent place of rest, this really good place of rest, but it doesn't satisfy them. And so over time, what develops through the psalmist and, and some of the writers of the Old Testament, the prophets, primi- primarily Isaiah and Jeremiah, what happens is that they look and, and they see like, hey, we had rest in the desert, but even now, we don't, we don't fully feel satisfied. Even though God has given us this great land to now settle in, we're no longer in the desert, even though God has, has made us his nation and he's provided for us and we have abundance, there's still something missing. We're still not truly satisfied in our souls. We can sense and we know from what God is telling us that God is going to do something even better and he is ultimately going to bring us a greater rest, a second rest. And this is what we see clued in in the first two verses of this feeding of 5,000 the 5,000 story. There's desert, there's rest. And if you're a Jewish person living in the first century reading this, you're starting to see just in the two verses like, wait a minute, I understand that the prophet said something is going to happen, someone is going to come that's going to actually bring us satisfaction, the satisfaction that we so deeply have longed for. And he picks up the story in verses 32 through 34. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. 
The word translated compassion, this is just so interesting, and I, I try not to talk about two Greek words in a sermon, but, but this is so interesting to me. It's only used of Jesus in the New Testament. It's the only, only way that this word for compassion is used, and it's a, it's a word that demonstrates like all of Jesus' life, the very reason that Jesus came. It's this word that, that kind of means pity that leads to action. We think of compassion as like, I feel bad, right? Like, I saw a picture of a starving kid in, a, in an advertisement, and I feel bad, I'm feeling compassionate. But the word that's used for Jesus in the New Testament is this word that means that feeling, but then like, I'm going to do something about it. And even there's almost a slant like, I can do something about it. Because when we sense compassion, oftentimes it's like, well, I feel pity for that person, but I don't know what I would do about it. I don't think I can do anything about it. But Jesus, being Jesus, had the ability and the power to do something for these people that he felt pity for. And so he comes out of the boat, and he's trying to get away with his disciples, and there's these huge crowds who have run ahead of him, which is kind of weird, and people have tried to figure that out historically and looked at the sea they traveled on and said, like, how did the crowd beat them when they went by boat? It should have been a straight line, but they really didn't go that far away as people are people's best guess, but it took a boat. Who knows why? Maybe so they wouldn't be followed. That didn't work out so well, but Jesus and the disciples get out of this boat looking for rest, and there's these giant crowds, and he feels compassion, and he wants to do something for them. And because this is the feeding of the 5,000, right? Like our initial reaction is like, well, they're hungry, but that's not the case. The reason that he feels compassion is because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Going back to the Old Testament, Numbers 27, 17, it says to go out and come before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, notice this, so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. This is a transition between Moses and Joshua, and Moses is saying, God, like, hey, the leaders, these people need a leader, and so it's going, it's Joshua becomes the leader, but we're clued in again here that this has something to do with the desert and rest and not being satisfied and looking for a future satisfaction. What does this all mean? There's similar, similar language in Ezekiel 34, 5. The phrase sheep without a shepherd is this term used in the Old Testament frequently to say God's people don't have a leader that they can really trust and get behind and follow. Even their greatest leaders, they, they, were, they were people who failed and did things that eventually led the nation astray. If you go back and you look at Israel's history and you look at the kings of Israel, there's very few good kings but even those good kings have these very dark black moments in their leadership that, that hurt the people deeply, that result in very bad things for the people that they're leading. And so this, this phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is like they need a leader. They need somebody to teach them what's good and what's right and what's healthy and, and, and what God wants. And so Jesus looks at them and he feels this pity and this pity leads to action and right away, right up front, the action is not that he starts feeding people. The action is that he starts teaching them. He realizes that their souls are hungry and he starts to teach them. I just think that this is pertinent to our situation today. We are, we are living in an era where, where information comes at us like it's just like we're trying to drink from a fire hose all the time, right? Like, 
I mean, we used to make that joke after you'd go to a conference or something. Like it was like drinking from a fire hose. Maybe you've never heard that before. I can see that in some of your eyes. But but that's something people say. I didn't make that up. And we used to say that like after a conference where somebody gave you a lot of information. You're like, whoa. And now we live like that constantly, right? Like there's always information and there's always one more thing to read. There's always something else to take in. There's these things in parenting. You're like, well, well, like, can I give my my kid popcorn? And then you, you read and you're like on, you know, number one thing on Google. Can I give my kid popcorn? No, do not give them popcorn until they're five years old. Thing number two, oh yeah, you can give it to them when they're five months. And they're both doctors. And you're like, well, I better go to number three. And number three is like, do not give your kid popcorn. And number four is like, oh, you should give them popcorn. It's very healthy and they'll probably never succeed if you don't. And you're like, what? I don't know what to do. And then you're on page 48 and you're like, somebody give me an answer. And, and I don't have any solution to the popcorn thing for you. But, but I... I think that we're like this with our souls sometimes, right? And, and there, there's this sense, I think, in our country today because of all the information that we are like sheep without a shepherd. We're being told so many things, but who can we trust? And the answer still is Jesus. He's the one whose teaching we can continue to trust, who, whose teaching we've always been able to trust in the midst of all of the garbage that surrounds us. The Jewish people probably felt just like us living in the first century, like, wow, we have more access to teaching than we've ever had before. I think every, every generation feels that in some ways, right? And, and yet Jesus shows up and goes like, there's no real leadership here. Plenty of people teaching, but not many people nourishing the soul. And so he starts to teach. And Jesus can nourish your soul if you'll listen to what he's saying. And the story continues in verses 35 through 38. By this time it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Now, I think that the disciples just are like, we were trying to get over here for some free time. I was going to lay in the sun, you know. Jesus is getting late. These people are hungry. Can you just get them out of here really quickly, you know? Like, hey, you're up there teaching. They're believing you. Why? Might as well say it's time to go, you know. Uh, but they, they say, look, Jesus, like they're hungry. Send them home. And he says this thing that is ridiculous. Like, go ahead. You feed them. And I, I mean, like this would have been, it says here, it says about half a year, but it's about eight months wages, like eight months wages to feed these people that are there. Eight months wages. And it's not like you go to a grocery store, right? It's not like you call up the local caterer and like, hey, we got 5,000 men plus women and children. We're going to need something stat, you know, like, can you make it over here? Like, that's not how it works, right? So he tells them this thing that, that is impossible. You feed them. 
And there, there's no way that they could possibly do that. It's not, it's not possible. There's no way that they're going to get fed. And then he asked this funny question like, well, what do you got? You know, it's like a bunch of poor college students like, hey, we're hungry. What's in the fridge? You know, and it's like, well, there's two leftover pieces of pizza, you know. Like, hey, what do we got? And, and so they go and they find out and there's these... There's these five loaves of bread and these two fish, and, and just to kind of get a picture in your mind, the five loaves would have been flatter than we think of loaves of bread, uh, and, and so picture something smaller, not a cracker, but not a, you know, a giant loaf of bread, a- and then there's these two fish that would have been dried and salted, uh, and so this is what they have to work with. Like, this isn't even really, uh, if you're like an adult male, this is probably not a full meal, so they don't even have one meal, and in fact, they, they find this from a kid, as it turns out, and so you have like not a full meal for one person, let alone the thousands of people who are there. And then Jesus kicks into like miracle mode. And, and it says in 39 through 44, then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. That's crazy. That's whoa, right? In fact, that's so whoa that if you were to do a little research like me on this passage of Scripture, you would find that there are people out there still right now. There are people out there that don't want us to believe that Jesus really could do miracles, that Jesus really had the ability to do things that were supernatural. And so they try to disprove this miracle with like some of the dumbest things i hate this like this is like a normal thing in critics of the bible but i think it's so stupid so like they don't want it to be a miracle and so they say well everybody got a little tiny portion like are you like what like why do you, i don't understand why that's a great explanation like somebody's pinned that and written it and published it like well they took a little chunk of the fish and they I mean you had a little more that's so stupid right and then other people will say like the number of people there was exaggerated and the amount of uh, up and the number of loaves and fish was exaggerated down and and so uh, and then some people just try to dis- diminish it all together and say like well they all they all shared you know they all shared but but here uh, the only reason that I think it's important to bring that up that there's these critics of scripture that try to diminish this the reason that that's important is because it shows how valuable this story is as far as looking at Jesus and saying like whoa that's incredible people don't feel a need to diminish the Jesus stories that are unimportant in fact there are groups who will say well Jesus really did that but then they'll come to the miracles and say he didn't because it doesn't fit with what they think about Jesus But what's clear, what's clear in the story, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but but specifically here in Mark, is that John Mark, writing by the influence of Peter, who's sitting there with Mark and had sat there while this moment called the feeding of 5,000 took place, is that they are trying to say, this was miraculous. 
Now you could say, and this is fine, I don't think this is necessarily dumb, I think it's wrong, but I don't think it's dumb like saying they each had a morsel, that's dumb, that's stupid. But saying like, well, I don't believe the scriptures, well fine, that's okay. Have a reason, but like, I, I don't agree with you, you're wrong, you should trust the scriptures, but like, at least you're not saying something stupid. It's like somebody tells you a story from 10 years ago in their childhood, and you're like, nah, I don't really think it happened that way. No, I was there. You know, like, I was there. It's the I was there thing. And the people who were there are like, this is what happened. And then 2,000 years later, it's like, nah, I don't think that's actually what happened. That's dumb. Right? I mean, that's dumb. We realize that's dumb. And, and so the reason that this, this story becomes a problem is because if Jesus really did this, it's like totally like a whoa moment. Like, this is absolutely incredible. I explained it, I, I read this to Hazel this week because she actually let me pick a story in her Bible. And so we were in the Bible and she picked a story and I picked a story and because I was preaching on this, I read her uh, this, I wanted to, to choose this one. And, and I was trying to like get the woe for her too, right? Like I, I try, I'm really good about that with Hazel. Like I wanted to say, wow, when it comes to Jesus. And, and so I had water in my hand, that's what I had. So you're getting the same illustration and I'm like, Hazel, like, think about it if we were at church and we had this much water and everybody was super thirsty and I went to every person and said, you drink as much of this water as you want. You drink as much of this as you want until you're satisfied because that's what Mark tells us. They all ate until they were satisfied. You, we're going to see this say, you drink as much as you want and you... Brandon right here in the front row did, and the next person did, and the next person did, and everybody just kept drinking all that they wanted until they didn't feel thirsty anymore. That's a big-time miracle, right? That's really incredible. A and this story, people are going to try to cut it down because that's not humanly possible, and there's no good explanation except for Jesus did that because Jesus had the Holy Spirit in him and the Holy Spirit moved in such powerful ways because he was the son of God that he did something that was utterly miraculous and at the very least as you read this story like you should say you should say wow whoa what that's amazing and if you're not a Christian person you're not a believer then you should be like I should explore this because that's a crazy story and if that's real it means that Jesus is different than any person I've ever met and if you are a Christian, you should just be like, I, man, Jesus is awesome. I, I, just, I mean, he's so awesome, and sometimes I treat him as not awesome, but that's awesome. But there's this deeper meaning besides Jesus is awesome in this story. And the meaning is the one that I've already alluded to, and that is that Jesus, Jesus satisfies. You see, what happens here is, is there's these connections to the Old Testament, and, and the first is, is Jesus has them sit down in these these fifties and and tens, and he, he splits them up. And if you were to go back to Exodus eighteen twenty one, there's this guy named Moses who was out in the desert. The guy I already mentioned, and he's like, I can't lead these people anymore because there's so many of them. And and then they break them up in divisions. Exodus eighteen twenty one. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Furthermore, it's like impossible to not see the connection to Exodus 16 where the people are out in the desert and, and they're hungry 
They've been set free from the oppression of the Egyptians and they're out in the desert hungry and all of a sudden God sends down this bread from heaven that's called manna that was this sweet bread that reminds me of the bread they serve at the Roadhouse Grill in, in Salem. I don't know if you've ever been there, you'll know what manna tastes like. And, and, and he sends it down to them and you can't help but see the connection, right? Like Jesus saying, look, there's a new and better Moses here and like Moses, I can feed you in the desert. Like God did through Moses, I can feed you while you're out in the desert. Even more, there's this other miracle, this similar miracle performed by Elijah in 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44. And, and so when Jesus shows up here and he does this incredible woe thing, Jesus knows exactly what he's saying. He's saying, you had Moses, you loved Moses. Moses did so many things to help you feel satisfied as a people. You had Elijah and the prophets and they did so many things to help you feel satisfied as a people. But there's someone greater here that can bring true satisfaction to your soul. And as he teaches the people because they're like sheep without a shepherd, he feeds their bodies too. And in it he is saying, he's so clearly saying, and Mark is so clearly telling us that Jesus is saying, he is the one that can produce in you real, true satisfaction. Mark comes back to this story later, as I mentioned earlier, and, uh, and, and what happens is that uh, in a story that Matt will preach on next week, like right after this, it's incredible, the people, and Mark doesn't tell this, but the people, because they feel so satisfied, they try to force Jesus to become an earthly king. You have to read it in John to understand that. But they're like, wow, full belly. This guy just did a miracle. This is everything we ever dreamed of. We can have all the food we ever want. And so they try to force him to become king. Like they forcibly try to make him king. He knows he's come to be the king of an eternal kingdom, right? And to die for our sins. He knows that that's coming. But they're like, no, no, no. You're going to start a military reign right now. And so Jesus sends his disciples out on the boat and he goes up to pray by himself and then he walks on water. Matt's going to teach on that next week. But then he's out on the boat with them. And they're like, they're like, Jesus is frustrated with us because we didn't bring enough bread to eat. It's this interesting story, right? And then in Mark 6, 52, it says, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. In Mark 8, 17 through 19, we get this, this same idea that I just mentioned. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. Now this is a clue because there are 12 tribes of Israel. And now there's 12 basketfuls. And Jesus is so clearly saying, he's just so clearly saying, I am here now. And you can have real satisfaction that for thousands of years, people have longed for. People have longed to be satisfied, to have rest in the midst of the desert that is this world, right? We know how dry and barren our lives can be. We know how difficult and hurtful our lives can be. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, I can bring you 
real rest. And what else is, this other thing is so interesting in the story of Mark because he shows us how. He shows us how. Because Mark uses like the exact same language in this story as, as when Jesus at the Last Supper, right before he's about to die on the first day that he begins this thing called communion that we'll celebrate in a few moments, he uses the exact same language when he talks about how Jesus prayed and broke bread and distributed among the people. And so what we see in Mark is Mark is saying, look, there's a new way that you can find real satisfaction. There's a new rest in the desert. And that rest comes through the body and blood of Jesus. But not only that, there's this other part of the language there that points to this other thing, and that is this, this eternal banquet. Oftentimes when, when Jesus' return is described in the New Testament, it's described as a as a big old feast and and i love that because we're so quick to think of heaven as this boring place where where we just i've said this a million times in sermons but where we sit on a cloud and play a harp right i think for those of us that had all dogs go to heaven when we were kids like it really it really pushed that into our brains that's probably why i feel a need to talk about it i mean the the dog i'm sorry if you haven't seen it yet but the dog leaves heaven because he's bored (laughs) like he's like up on a cloud playing the harp that's the whole point of the movie is he's like i can't handle this i gotta go back to earth where i can get in some trouble and so he leaves it's a terrible movie my daughter will not watch it my son will not watch it Uh, it's a bad movie and I saw it in the theater um and so like it's ingrained in me to like be like that's not heaven in fact most of the time when it's described especially Jesus by Jesus himself he describes as this incredible banquet or this giant feast and so we know that Jesus death brings satisfaction it brings a new level of satisfaction because in jesus death in in his broken body and shed blood we can find hope and forgiveness and peace and love and joy because he offers us forgiveness for sins in that death he did it for our sins but even more jesus death means that if we accept that gift if we place our faith in what he did on the cross then someday, whether through our deaths or when he returns, we will have this eternal feast. That's a great description of heaven, right? I'm never leaving that. Like, I, did, I don't need to know anything else about heaven, but if you tell me there's no problems and I get to eat a lot, like, I'm super good with that. Like, that sounds fun. If you tell me that there's basketball too, like, I'm, then it's over. Like, all right, sign me up. I'll accept Jesus today. You know, I already did, but you know what I mean? Like, I'm totally in for that. And in this story of the feeding of 5,000, there's language that seems to remind us, like, hey, Jesus brings a second rest because, yes, he gives you forgiveness for your sins, but also he gives you this promise of this great feast, this great banquet where you will eat to your heart's delight and you'll never have to hunger again. That's cool. And so the feeding of the 5,000, I mean, just on a surface cursory reading, it's like, wow. But even more, it says, look, it says, look, you can't find satisfaction anywhere. True, real, deep, full satisfaction anywhere, except in the person of Jesus. And we search for it. In so many places. 
the non-Christians I know, people that don't haven't accepted Jesus, haven't felt that satisfaction, don't know about his forgiveness, or at least haven't embraced it, aren't longing for an eternity in heaven, I can, I can almost watch them go from one thing to another to another to another, searching for the satisfaction that only Jesus is going to bring them. It's like, well, I'll, I'll invest deeply in my job. Well, still don't really feel the satisfaction I'm looking for. Maybe I'll get really into a hobby. That'll do it for me. Like, oh, no, that didn't do it for me either. Well, I'll switch hobbies. Well, that didn't do it for me either. You know, oh, okay, well, I'm just going gonna, gonna to try to build my social media status, right? Like, as long as people like me, if more and more people like me, then I'll feel, and they don't. And then you have the extreme case, and we know this. Like this is, I'm pretty sure this is why people become drug addicts. Like it's like they long for a satisfaction that Jesus can bring. They just don't know it. They refuse to give their lives to Jesus, and so drugs. It's like, well, this this drug brings me satisfaction. Now that drug brings me satisfaction for a moment, and then it it goes away, and it, it never really fulfills, and they keep chasing the next high. I would say most of the things that you struggle with are because you want the satisfaction that Jesus can bring. And so if you're not a Christian, like you just, I just need you to hear like, you're not going to be satisfied. I've watched too many people try to do whatever it takes to feel satisfied. You're never going to experience it apart from Jesus. But Jesus came down, he died a terrible, horrible death for your sins, and he rose again so that you can have forgiveness for your sins if you'll embrace him and, and, and give your life to him, and you can look forward to an eternity in heaven. I promise the satisfaction you'll have will be different than anything you've ever experienced before. But so many of us, even as Christians... We, we have like times in our life where we're like, well, I really just need to engage this area of my life because it's lacking. It's not quite up to the standard that I feel like it needs to be. And so many of the Christians that I'm around, it's like, yeah, I'm pretty fully satisfied. But to be more satisfied, I'm going to chase something besides Jesus. Maybe I'm crazy, but I think that's probably the thing for a lot of you. A nicer house or, you know, a better car or more friends or uh, being better at something something that you think you need to be better at. But the, the trick of it all is, if you found that real satisfaction in Jesus, the place you should look for more satisfaction is in fact Jesus. But we are like these people who are like, Jesus has fed my soul and I've made him king. But when I'm having a rough day, I'll turn somewhere else. No, turn to Jesus. Because Jesus is forever and only the one who can ultimately satisfy you. And so if you're not a Christian, turn to Jesus and, and find satisfaction. If you are, and you're looking at a certain area of your life, and you're like, I just don't feel good about it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, as it says. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim. Because Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the one satisfies. I'm going to pray that that will happen in you. Lord, pray for every person who sits in front of me this morning, the people who are listening online and will listen online, and I just ask God that, that for those who don't know you as their Savior, that they would, they would at least examine, because of what you've done in this sermon, they'd at least examine uh, the truths of this story, the truth of your death and resurrection, 
and they would take a deep look at, at who you are and what you've done, God. Because I know, God, I just, I mean, I don't, I'm not telling any great secret that they probably don't know themselves, God. They, they're not satisfied like they want to be. And they can have joy that goes beyond circumstances. They can have hope that goes beyond circumstances. They can have peace that transcends all understanding, Lord, if they'll embrace you. And so I pray that they would, they would at the very least, look at you and examine you. But even more, God, I pray that they would give their lives to you. And then for those of us who are Christians, God, I pray that we would, be, that we would, that we would always be looking for for these things that we long for in you because we know that you're the only place that we can find them. God, help us not to find, you know, look for our, our forgiveness and, and, and our own merit or by our own sacrifice, but always help us to look at you and say, Jesus forgives. And, and let us not try to find our joy and, and, and the next high that this world can bring, God, by like, I don't know, a great meal or uh, by being better at something, as I said, but let us always find our joy in you, God, and let us always build our hope around this, this great banquet that will someday come that we'll, we will get to take part in. Jesus, it's only you who satisfied us, and so let us always look for our satisfaction in you. I thank you for coming to this earth, for being the good shepherd, God, for being really the great shepherd. For giving your lives so that we may have we may have all of the things I've mentioned and more. And for loving us, God, and wanting a relationship with us. That's an incredible gift. I pray, God, that at the very least we would say, whoa, when it comes to the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. <laughs>